Will you guys do me a favor and uh, give a round of applause to the worship band? I appreciate you guys doing that. And all the folks that are um, making the service happen today and allow us to worship the Lord corporately. Um, the reason I say that is because today we're talking about worship and I, I showed up this morning just, morning just feeling especially grateful that we get a chance to gather, that there are people who do more than anyone would know to plan and prepare and make it possible for us to um, be together this morning. So our passage today, Psalm 95, the topic is worship in this particular way. Worship is a bridge between beliefs and behavior. And we're going to talk about three things, why we worship, what it is, and how it's done. For a long time, I've heard people sort of just ask the question, um, a well-intentioned question, but a skeptical question that says, why are there so many Christians that are messed up? Why are there so many people who claim Jesus, talk about the Bible, God is good, and yet you look at their lives and their behavior just doesn't match their beliefs? And I guess the objection, the question sounds something like this. If Christianity is so powerful to change, if it's so true, then why isn't it the case that all Christians or even a majority of Christians have their life together? And uh, as a response, I've got two, two responses. One of them is like a theological one, and then one of them is more of a personal sharing before we dig into these points. Um, on a theological level, it's interesting because if you look through just like a wide swath of scriptures, you would see that everyone on earth is made in the image of God. Like we're all made in the image of God. Even people who deny Jesus every day to their last day, made in the image of God. And to use another theological term, we have God's common grace which is that when you look at scripture, you look at the world, it's evident that God has made a world that has some joy, some peace, some goodness in it, even though the world is full of problems and people who don't know Jesus or don't want to know Jesus. And so that's called common grace, where it's just like God has given a kind of grace to every single kind of person, and he's made them in his image to have, a, to have a, an intellect that thinks about things like peace and reconciliation and love and, and that kind of thing. So also, people who claim to be Christians are sinners. And so it's like you're saved in Jesus and yet you're sinful. It knocks you down a bit. And, and so sometimes Christians believe things, but their sin prohibits them from living out what they claim. And alternatively, people who don't know Jesus live a lot better than their beliefs would dictate. Does that make sense? Like people say, um, I don't want to believe in God. Everyone has their own truth. There's no such thing as like a prescribed moral uh, prescription for life. Don't tell me what you believe. Everyone has their own truth. And, and, and yet people say uh, racism is wrong and the poor should be fed and human life matters. And so like, there is no truth, overstatement, but there's some truth to what I just said. And yet people's beliefs are like causing them to be decently good, even though their beliefs don't match it. And then Christians are, are, have these lofty God beliefs, and yet our sin knocks us down to this muddy middle where we all end up acting very similar. Okay, that's the theological thing, common grace, image of God, sin. Um, on a practical level, I had a particular like epiphany uh, in 2014, and I lived for nine years in a very blue-collar, um, very hard uh, impoverished, underprivileged part of Central California. So this is Bakersfield, and then if you looked at the map of Bakersfield, um, you would, if you just found the most impoverished part, that's sort of where I did ministry. I ran a little nonprofit for some teenagers there in a little part of town called Oildale, which it even just sounds like 
an impoverished area. And I used to joke when we would minister to the families and students there that this little square mile of the city just had more swastikas per square mile than anywhere else in the world. It was just a weird, like, like very difficult. It has its own history and its own problems and a lot of very hardened, difficult, traumatized people. So I thought in my young faith that people who didn't have as much going for them would reach out to God and would just be much godlier people, but that the most ungodly people were like wealthy folks. That like they're privileged, they're, um, they're entitled, and so wealthy people don't like God and the poor love God. And there's some truth to that. Listen to Jesus about wealth and you'll hear something like that. But then we moved from Bakersfield to Santa Barbara. Y'all ever been to Santa Barbara before? Like it was night and day. It was a very interesting move from predominantly poor to predominantly wealthy. And I was at a church there and I spent time with families and teenagers in Santa Barbara and they were set up for success. Smart, savvy, generational wealth, privileged. Underprivileged, privileged. But the funny thing that I observed is that there were godly people in Santa Barbara that just lived a very different lifestyle. They're just very godly people. They read their Bible every day. If someone asked you, if, if someone came up to one of the church members and said, will you mentor me? They almost always said yes. They were godly, patient, wonderful people who when I met them, I was like, um, you, you've, you pay a lot of money and attention to your appearance. You've, you've had more work done than I would assume the average humble Christian would have, and yet very godly people. And here's the point I'm trying to make. Some of the godliness of the people I met that were very well off, it was a kind of privilege that caused their godliness. And for the people who were hurting and, and um, struggling every day, not sure where they would get food to put on the table, they seemed ungodly because life was more difficult. And there was a kind of blessing that caused you to be very godly. Here's my point. If, you, if you're saying, why are Christians so messed up? Why aren't their lives all together? Ideally, Christians would all be these people who just have their life together and perfectly bridge their beliefs and their behavior. What you're saying is Christians should only be the people who are well off, who are successful, who have mental balance, who have the kind of money that they can give a lot of money away, but not actually have to live a very different lifestyle. And so Christians should be generous. Well, people who have a lot of money can be generous. People who are poor have to worry about that kind of thing. Um, people who don't have to work full-time have part-time jobs just because they want to kind of work, and then they have time to mentor someone and be disciple-makers. This is, this, is this is a long way to say, if you're saying Christians should all have their life together and really perform, what you're saying is the only people who should be Christians are the ones who are mentally balanced, the ones who have good like, like mental chemical balance the people who have enough money so they can give it away and not worry, the people who have extra time because they don't have to work two jobs, the people who have everything going for themselves. So it is God's grace that causes people who are highly wealthy and highly struggling and are dealing with like all sorts of problems in their life and have to wrestle with all of those things and their faith, God's grace goes to all of those people. And that's good news. But because God's grace is so lavished on us that we should be called children of God, to, to quote 1 John, there's people all on the spectrum of problems and hang-ups and privileges and advantages that are all children of God. 
and that's good news. But if it were one, time, one kind of person, then we would be monolithic and we would all have our lives together, but God's grace. So how then do Christians all across the spectrum of life's chances and helps and hurts, how do we bridge the gap between uh, belief and behavior? Worship, in part, is that bridge between those two things. Worship is a practice, a spiritual discipline, and a heart attitude that merges, that bridges what we believe, what we say is true about God, and how we live our lives. So here we go. Worship. Why we should. We should worship because we're invited into worship. Look at verse 1. It says, come, let us. Let us is the third person passive in grammar. It's the most inclusive of all the grammatical shapes, right? And the psalm is saying, come, you're invited into a place where you can worship God, connect to God, to know God, and to give what you have to the Lord. Come, let us sing, uh, let, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. So it's an invitation, but it also engages in the whole person. Look at the psalm here. We sing and we shout. We're embodied people. Jesus was an embodied physical savior. He resurrected from the dead physically. Uh, we have minds. We have, we have gifts. We have places where God's put us. And so we're meant to be worshipers of God in, in physical space, in real life. And we are invited into that. So Something needs to drive us, I'm mixing metaphors here, but something needs to drive us into belief. Um, have you guys ever heard of the, the mysteriously moving rocks of Death Valley? Do we have a picture of that, Tech, Techie? You, you guys are on it this morning. Thank you so much. So there's these rocks in Death Valley, right? And for years and years, nobody knew what would cause these rocks to move because there's the trails that uh, there's no footprints. It's not indicative of the possibility that some random desert dweller walks once a year and kicks each rock, right? They're just sort of pristine, left alone, and yet these rocks are constantly moving. They're thinking, is, it, um, is, there, is there magnetic stuff? Is it spiritual? Uh, and I guess maybe we don't completely know, but there is a leading theory. And I hope if there are scientists in the room that I don't misspeak here. But, I, but so, so as far as I read this week, what happens is in the desert, in the wintertime, there's water that falls into this low-lying area. And then the water freezes on the top first. And in the instance where the water only freezes on the top, but that the bottom is liquid, kind of making the mud mushy, and then the wind kicks up, the wind is pushing the top layer of ice into the rocks just ever so slightly. Every time the wind blows, if it's a certain temperature, to nudge these rocks year after year to make these long trails as they move. And when I think of spiritual growth, I think of like sudden moments where sometimes God did change me quickly, but the average day-to-day -day life that I live as a Christian is very much God's grace, just sort of like coming into contact with my life every day, in every circumstance, in every place, in every fear, in every frustration, and in every joy. And that's sort of the spiritual growth journey. And my thought is, in my life, when people recognize that there's any sort of positive change that God has done, I don't always know what has taken me from point A to point B, but there is sort of a trail of God's grace pushing me in that way. I'm mixing metaphors. I got rocks. I got bridges. But you understand the point that I'm trying to make here, which is that God is moving us closer from, behave, from belief 
to behavior that matches who God is. And worship does that. We have to do it. It's, it's a practice. It's a practice in your life that will either get done or it won't get done. And so God's grace is free to us when we submit our lives to Jesus. And the process of spiritual growth is also a grace to us that Paul says in Ephesians that our faith to even believe is a gift from God. So he, he starts the process. He's moving us in the process. He will save us in his return. Like all of that is God's work. And yet we practice with God things that allow us to be moved. Things where we pray, God, I don't have faith. Will you give me more faith? Which, of course, is a prayer that a person would say if you had faith. But it's saying, I, I need more faith. So we have to have practices. And worship is one of these beautiful ones that involves, we'll see here in our passage, our entire body, our mind, our will, and our emotions, and our physical life. So this is more into my next point, which is what worship is. Worship is, to, to quote one commentator I read this week, ascribing ultimate value to something and engaging your mind, will, and emotions as you do it. Worship is ascribing ultimate value to an object and engaging mind, will, and emotions to do it. So look in verse 1. Uh, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Sing, shout, verse 2. Let us come before him. We're showing up physically with thanksgiving and extol. I don't use the word extol much, so I had to Google it this week. Extol, extolling the virtues of something means you're speaking of the goodness, the good traits of something. And so that's our definition here uh, especially. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Just by show of hands. How many of you know some kind of instrument? You know how to play some sort of instrument? You don't have to be amazing at it. Okay, so like a good 90%. Does that mean that we're just like a particular type of person? Do you think the other churches in town are just like nobody and that we're all just people who were forced to take piano lessons as a kid, you think? I don't know. So a lot of people like, like for the online audience, there's almost everyone knows some sort of instrument. And you know there's, a, there's an emotional part of music and there's a logistical part of music. Like you've got to play the right notes um, you, you have to think, what is the frame of this chord? What is the thing my mouth should do? I used to play the clarinet in college, in high school. And I was like, what is the thing my tongue should be doing so that I'm playing and creating something beautiful? And music is a beautiful mix between the creative, the exalting, the, the existential, and the very logical and practical. Because if you talk to musicians, they know all the strategies for getting every little tone out of the instrument. And it, it, takes, it takes a will. Sometimes playing music hurts. Like if anyone played the trumpet, you know, it's like your lips are doing something weird on the instrument, and you, when you're done, you're always in pain. That's just a normal part of playing the trumpet. Like, like your fingers hurt when you play guitar. It, it takes effort, and it creates something beautiful, but it also is very strategic, and that's like a mix of all three of our, the things that we're talking about here. So we're extolling God with our emotions. Let me ask you a question, just by way of application. What does the Christian, look, Christian life look like if it doesn't have emotions? Like, what does your Christian life look like? What does our mission in our city look like? What does Sunday morning look like if it doesn't involve any emotions? It might apply to a certain type of engineer, <laughs> a certain type of very scientific brain. My, my guess is that it would cause us to all be very doctrinaire, to be very knowledgeable about the Bible, but to be very focused on just arguing about a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter to anyone else who doesn't know Jesus. That would maybe be what Christianity looks like if it doesn't have emotions, if it doesn't have a heart that's connected to God personally. Okay, so that's the emotions. 
uh, our worship engages the will. Verse 6, come let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. This is a, a willful decision to submit ourselves before God. It engages the will. And then verse 7, we see the mind engaged. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. We're thinking about our relationship with him. The flock under his care. Today, if you would only hear his voice. Now, if anyone is married, uh, has, has regular conversations with a friend where they're like personal conversations, or if you have any children, you know the difference between hearing and listening. But you know the difference between hearing and listening because do you hear me is, is there some part of your brain that recognizes that you're being spoken to? That's hearing. And then what's listening? Listening is hearing what's being said to you and engaging the mind in a way that interprets it accurately, right? So if someone, you know, your spouse is talking to you, but you're on your phone, and then you heard some noise, you weren't paying attention, and then your spouse stops and is just looking at you, waiting for you to recognize that uh, you weren't listening, and then you look up and you go, I'm just very hypothetical situation here. Uh, you look up and your spouse is going, were you listening to me? And you go, yeah, you were saying something about this Wednesday. You know, whatever, you're trying to rack your brain, like, what were you talking about? So uh, there's a difference between just hearing and listening because the difference is engaging your mind in what you're hearing. And so we're engaging our mind in worship because we're hearing his voice. We're thinking about his word, what he has said to us. So what does a Christian life look like if it doesn't involve the will? A Christian life that doesn't involve the will doesn't have any submission. It's, it would be like people coming in to have an emotional, spiritual experience and then leaving with no dedication to who God is, no commitment to it, it's all just about us. It would just be an emotional fix, a spiritual feeling, but no actual crunchy, orthodox, historic faith in the biblical God. What would the Christian life look like if it didn't involve the mind? Everyone would just sort of be like uh, here for their own consumption, but not unified around a common savior. And so how would you ever have conversations about who God is to you? Because as soon as you shared who God is to you, somebody else would say, oh, that's all well and nice, but I like to, I like to think of Jesus this way. And, and there's, not a, there's not an orthodoxy. There's not a common Savior or a common salvation or a common God to say, this is our God. Let us worship him together. Everyone's got their own. So no unity, no, no church, no common celebration of who God is. So we have to have all three. Worship has to engage our whole life with him. And then my, my second part here in terms of talking about what worship is, is ascribing ultimate value. And we talk about this a lot at Ambassador, so I'll sort of move through it quickly if this sounds like a thing I'm a uh, broken record about. But worship is saying there's something in your life that has like ultimate value to you that makes you somebody. The, there's one word in our psalm that describes why and how we have the ultimate value ascribed to God, and it is the word for. Look in verse 3. Well, let's, let's back up. So come, let us worship, verse 1. Verse 2, let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. So there's a connection between the emotions and the mind, and they're saying there's a reason why we worship. Because he's the great king above all gods. And then the next verse. Verse 6. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for. 
For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under, under his care. It's Israel, the Psalms are used in worship in Israel, and Israel is able to say, even when we feel alienated and alone and ignored and worthless, he is our God. He's my Jesus, that we, we get to talk like that. He's my God who has saved me and knows me. He's ours. It's our, it, he is our special possession. Four. And, and the shepherding language is used in verse seven. They're saying he's like we're his sheep, but he's a shepherd who's present and guiding us. He's with us. So here's the point. The psalmist is thinking and treasuring the realities of God's nature in verses 7 and following, there's some history about the nation of Israel. So they're recounting their history and saying, look how God has saved us and brought us through the wilderness and in the Exodus. Exodus. This, this psalmist is meditating and thinking deeply. Not meditation in the sense of like emptying your mind and just saying some stuff over and over again, but like biblical meditation, which is like the image of chewing. A b- biblical meditation is like a chewing on something to get the flavor out of it. It's like, um, yeah, it's like eating steak. It's like eating something where as soon as it hits your mouth, you just go like, oh, this is really good. That's meditation. You're thinking. You're you're physically affected by it. It's affecting your emotions. So here's the relationship between worship and behavior, and we're starting to sort of like see that what the bridge looks like and the way it's built. Worship in the Old English comes from a merger between two words, worth and shape. And that conjunction, or I don't know grammar very well, is that a conjunction? It's like a, it's a whatever. That merger of those two words um, is a great theological meaning for what the Bible says about worship, worth and shape. Uh, it's ascribing great worth, extolling the virtues of something. And whatever you ascribe worth to in your life is what shapes you. It's what guides you. It's what owns you. And you might say, I'm not a worshiping person, I'm not a super spiritual person, I'm not a very religious person. But when you define worship that way, isn't it the case that everyone worships something? Everyone has to look to something for their value and worth. Whatever that thing is, that's what shapes you because we are worth shaping. So this is the psalmist. A couple years later, Jesus. A couple years later, 1500s, reformer Martin Luther. He said, in talking about worship, that when you break the Ten Commandments and your behavior doesn't match what God wants you to do with your life, um, the breaking of any of God's commandments is first a breaking of the first commandment. Do you remember the first commandment? Don't have any other gods before me. Don't worship any other gods before me. So Martin Luther is saying, if you want to change your behavior, you want to obey the Ten Commandments and all the other commands of God about what he wants for your life, you have to first look at the, the first sin that you're committing, which is a change in who deserves worship in your life? You're first breaking the very first commandment. Okay, that's Martin Luther, 1500s. Yada, yada, 1700s. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I was going to tell you about Rocky Balboa. I'm going to tell you about my next theologian, and then um, we'll talk about uh, Rocky Balboa. And then we're going to talk about Jesus. I got a lot of good stuff here. Sorry, I'm, uh, I'm turned upside down here. Oh, sorry, Jonathan Edwards. 1700s, Jonathan Edwards makes this case that um, whatever you worship is your God, and whatever that God is, he gives you commandments. So let's walk through it this way. Psalms, 
Jesus, Martin Luther, and, uh, and Jonathan Edwards. There's a progression here. I'm trying to walk through it clearly. Okay, so we all worship. What do you worship? Whatever you worship shapes you. And whatever you worship gives you its own set of Ten Commandments. And so if you worship pleasure in your life, you would look to pleasure to save you from, it's your Savior, to save you from the hell of a boring life or to save you from the uncomfortable feeling of not being, living your best life. It's saving you from that. And if that's your Savior, it becomes your Lord and that Lord gives you a Ten Commandments that says, thou shalt always be happy, otherwise there's something wrong. Or thou shalt keep all the money you have because you never know when you're going to need it to keep yourself in, in the good life. Thou shalt push away people from your life who don't make you better, which is a very self-centered way to live your life. You'll notice not, not keeping friendships. You'll notice not having a healthy marriage that's sacrificial because if your God is always being happy, always having pleasure, you're going to notice uh, behaviors coming from your life that are very self-seeking. Money issues, sex issues, time issues. And you'll look back at a couple decades of life with that as your God, and you'll notice yourself obeying those Ten Commandments in a very self-centered, self-focused way, and that will be your life. But it started because you made joy, happiness, temporary, fleeting stuff your, your God. That's the progression. Jesus says in Matthew 13, like the shortest two stories in the Bible, I think, uh, Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Finds a treasure in the field. Jesus is basically saying, like, I'm the treasure, by the way. Wink. Pay attention to the story. I'm the treasure. A guy goes out in a field, which in a world without banks, sometimes you would do that to avoid having your money stolen. He finds the treasure. If a treasure's hidden in a field, it's probably because um, whoever put it there died, left it there. You found some immense wealth, and it would be worth selling everything you had to buy the field, which is no easy cost. We know this in Orange County, buying property, not an easy thing. And then you go back, but it was worth selling everything you had because of the treasure you knew you had in it. Jesus is saying, what's your treasure? He tells another story. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and he found one of great value and went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So he's a merchant. A merchant uh, who's selling, buying, stuff like that is on the lookout every single day for deals. You have to be shrewd at what's good, what's valuable, what's the value so you can haggle for it. That's your job, and you're good at looking for what has worth. And then this pearl of great price comes to him, and then he sells everything and has it. Jesus is saying in a different way, for those of you who are hunting for the right way to live your life, you're, you're searching for the right spiritual things to believe or the right God to know or the right way to live your life, Jesus is saying there is a treasure out here that if you're willing to lose everything, you will gain something completely different but altogether more wonderful. And in a sense saying, I'm that treasure. I'm the thing that deserves, that has great worth and should shape you. Okay, Rocky Balboa is, and I'm getting old enough now, and that movie's old enough that if you don't know who that is, you can Google it. But Rocky Balboa is a boxer. It's a very famous series of movies. And um, in one of the first movies, um, Rocky Balboa is getting beat up 
by Apollo Creed or one of those other boxers, and then someone goes to him after the fight and says, why do you, Rocky, why do you keep on fighting? Which is sort of his thing. Like, like he may not be the biggest boxer, but he has the most heart. And he's always fighting to the bitter end, and he's taking all kinds of abuse. And then the, so he asks him, the kid asks him, why do you keep going? Why do you, Rock, why do you go the distance? And he says, I go the distance so I know I'm not a bum. And, and we all know that we have those things. Like, I got to get these degrees, this job, look like this, have this many zeros on my paycheck, um, so I know I'm not a bum. Whatever that is, that's the thing that you worship, that's the thing that shapes you. And so we get to look at it for what it is in all the light of day and say, I have a propensity to worship this thing. And I see that it's shaping me in this way. And I see that it is giving me these commandments that are not producing in my life the goodness that I wanted. And so I'm going to change that process and walk, let God walk me through that whole, um, that whole process all the way to my behavior. Let's wrap up with this. What's keeping us from driving the excellencies of Christ into our heart? Well, in part... It's the practice of worship. And so we need to get good at doing it on an emotional level, on a physical show-up level, on a will level, everything. So worship should be like this. It should be corporate. It should be corporate. Worship should be corporate. It can be done personally, and it's delightful to do personally. Um, but if you look in the psalm, all the language in the psalm is all collective. Let us. Come let us. We are the people. And, and in, in an individualistic culture like we live in, um, it's very normal for it to be just me and God or for our first interaction with God and the first way we think about our faith to be just very personal. How am I doing with God? Am I being obedient? We don't think collectively much, but I wonder how every time you catch yourself just thinking about you and the Lord, I wonder if you should just add to it the collective thing and see what would come up. Like ask the question, how are we being obedient to you, God? Uh, you could ask, am I showing up to church today ready to worship the Lord or do I need to sort of pray my heart hot so I'm ready to actually like be here with God and then pray that collectively? Are we here on a Sunday morning able to check out from whatever else is going on and be here with the Lord? Are we here to honor the Lord and extol his virtues? So worship is corporate. A lot of people, especially since the pandemic, uh, like the pandemic, the online thing was a great like reset button for a lot of people's faith to start their faith, to reevaluate their faith, um, and to reevaluate the, their relationship with the church. And so there's like books and statistics and all sorts of new information coming out about what the Christian life in America is like post-pandemic, post-2020. And so there's all sorts of, there's a new rush of people that are saying the Christian life doesn't need to be meant to, to lived out collectively. There's like increasing numbers. There were always people who said, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. There were always people who were saying, I'm spiritual but not religious. There were always people saying, I love Jesus but I don't like the church. Like that is absolutely nothing new. And everyone's got good reasons and sort of oversimplified reasons for those beliefs. But there's just a new type of person who's disappointed in the church. But the funny thing, my experience with church, and I started to ask the question, like, why do I keep uh, liking church? Why do I keep liking church people? Why do I keep liking being around at church? And part of it is that there is an it factor to a healthy church community where, and here's the it factor for a healthy, thriving church. Everyone shows up 
wanting everyone else to know Jesus more. That's the thing that combats the consumerism of of, uh, American Christianity, where I come to get my stuff so that me and God can have a thing, or I can come so my emotions are, just my emotions are enacted so that the band better be good, because I'm really expecting like a real cool, like that third song needs to be like, and I want to be able to at least do this and like real get some some good worship in, you know, like, like the thing that keeps us from the emotional consumerism, the thing that keeps us from just the mind being engaged, the Bible teaching better be verse by verse, it better be verse one, then explain verse two, I better have some Hebrew and some Greek, it better be very logical, otherwise I'm gone um, and I'll be gone before the music starts because it's too loud whatever like so like the thing that keeps us from the logical consumerism the thing that keeps us from the will consumerism they might say the pastor better call some people out because it's not a sermon if somebody ain't getting yelled at you know it it, you the pastor better be telling people how to live and it better be right targeting the sins that I think should be called out so the thing that keeps us from the consumerism of just one of those aspects of worship is coming to church being involved in whatever stuff you're involved in But the heart of it is saying, I need Jesus more, and I want everyone else that I love here to know Jesus more as well. And that means that um, you can do small talk, but it doesn't only need to be small talk at church. You can uh, come and leave, or you can come and stick around in terms of Sunday morning worship. You can show up to your collective thing, your your small group, and if you're you're like, I think God stinks today, and I want to talk about it, then that's like a thing that you can bring and people can help you know Jesus more. The it factor is everyone wants everyone else to know Jesus more. Last thing, our worship needs to be restful. And that's truly possible in light of our salvation in Jesus. If you notice, the end of our passage says, um, these people who in Exodus 17, um, who, who did not listen to the Lord, did not obey the Lord, and therefore didn't enter the promised land, and, and have rest. And so you can imagine the Israel uh, having to carry everything on their back for their entire life, c- carrying everything around the wilderness of the Exodus and wondering when God would let them into the rest. Those people will not enter the rest because they didn't listen to the Lord. Cliffhanger, how does someone enter rest, full, engaged worship? Well, the Israelites were allowed into the promised land eventually. And through Jesus, we have a deep kind of soul rest with our worship. Here's what I'm saying. Worship in Jesus should be restful worship. It shouldn't be worship that says, I I better sing this song loud. I better pray these prayers hard. Otherwise, God's not going to bless me. Or a real Christian has to worship frantically because you never know when God's going to hear your prayers. There's a restfulness to our worship in Jesus because we're saved in him, independent from our works because of his work for us on the cross. And so we can just take a big, deep breath, know that our salvation is taken care of because of what he's done for us, and then thank him, extol his virtues in the midst of our flaws. Going back to the beginning of our sermon, in the midst of the fact that we might have uh, trauma, traumas, hurts, anxieties, and worries that are like, from personal decisions. We might have some that have just come to us because of the the type of life that we're living. And we can extol him for being saved in the midst of those hangups and not have to have our life cleaned up before God will interact with us. We might be people who um, have a sense of guilt. We go, my life's going really well and a lot of other people's around me aren't going well. And we can thank him for those things, take the, the joys, blessings, and privileges that we have, but know that like, God's grace will always be a privilege. Every single person who has God's grace 
has not earned it, and therefore it is just a grace that has come to us. And so what do you do with God's grace? It goes out. Just like God's blessing to us, they just go through us and out, not out of some place of guilt, but out of a place of joy from the things that God has graced us. And so every kind of person can be at rest worshiping Jesus. Hebrews 4 makes that point. Uh, Hebrews 4 references Psalm 95. In talking about it, it says that we're all carrying things on our back in life. But like Jesus takes that weight off of us through his death on the cross. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah says of Jesus in a prophecy that he would look at the, his sufferings and he will be satisfied. Isaiah says he will look at his sufferings and be satisfied. Hebrews says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. And 1 Peter 2 says that we are God's special possession. That because of what he's done for us, we are God's special possession. We are his people. So let's add all of those things up and then worship Jesus because of it. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would look at all the sufferings of what he took on the cross, and he would look at all the pain that he endured for us and be satisfied at it. Jesus is happy that he died for you. And it was a joy that was set before Jesus that caused Jesus to come and to die for us. And because of that work that made Jesus satisfied, that made Jesus restful at the, at the joy of what he did for us, now we are his special possession. And here's my hope. Make him, make him your special possession because you are his special possession. Look at the work that he did, the suffering that he went through, the thing that propelled Jesus to the cross, that, he, that you are his special possession. And look what he did to make you that. And so make him your pearl of great price, your treasure hidden in a field that's worth selling everything. That's, that's restful worship. Let's pray.